Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. I am so excited about interviewing our guest today, Mike Viking. He is the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute, and he's been on a global mission to discover components of happy people all over the world. He's from Denmark. He's also a New York Times bestselling author and has written several books and reports on happiness, subjective well-being, and the quality of life. His books have sold over 2 million copies worldwide. We're going to talk to him about the Danish concept of Huga, H-Y-G-G-E, and also his most recent book, The Art of Making Memories. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So I am so fascinated by this topic, and I was so grateful to find you. Your books are incredible. Uh, I'll start off with saying that what led me to even get into this concept of Danish happiness or understanding that Danes are, as you'll tell us, the happiest people in the world is through my stepfather, who is Danish, and he is from the island of Bornholm. And he never has a bad day, Mike. It's just, really, it's really amazing. And over time, when we looked into it, we're like, why are the Danes so happy? And one of the things I saw, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was an element to the happiness that I've personally experienced with my stepdad, which is this, they don't have expectations. And I guess that's not to say that if someone promises you they're going to fix your car and they don't, you don't have a proper expectation. But the way I've experienced it through my stepfather is that if plans go wrong, if something happens that makes everything do a 180, they go with it. There's no complaining. There's no bitching. There's no arguing with the reality of it. And one of the examples is that my parents were about to take a trip and it was two hours away from their house and they were going to get on a like international cruise. And my mother had forgotten my stepfather's papers. Most people would be freaking out, probably blame the other person. And it was just like the most calm situation. He was like, well, I'll go back and get it. And if I miss the boat, then I'll fly down and meet you. It was just no resistance. It was there, no, you know, it's just amazing because he just doesn't have a bad day. So let's go back to, again, let's talk about the, the components of why the Danes are considered the happiest people in the world. Okay. Wow. Your dad sounds very cool, by the way. Um, so, so, so the reason why we talk about Danish happiness is that you know every couple of months there'll be a new happiness, livability, quality of life ranking out, and usually the Danes, along with the other Nordic countries, so Sweden, Finland, Norway, Iceland, uh, are usually in the top uh, of those lists. Uh, one of the most prominent ones is the World Happiness Report, commissioned by the UN, uh, and I think Denmark has been on top of that three or four times in the past eight years or so. Um, so I think it's important to, to underline when we look at these happiness rankings uh, is, is to say that these rankings are usually based on averages. So you calculate a national average. Uh, um, and that means that, you know, you can call the Nordic countries or Denmark the happiest countries in the world. Uh, you could also call them the least unhappy country uh, because they are, are based on averages. And I think that's that's part of the key to understanding why the Nordic countries do well is that those countries are really good at reducing causes for unhappiness. So there is access to healthcare. Um, there is free university education. Uh, if you go to university, you get 
$800 US per month to buy books and housing and so on. Um, and a lot of the things that makes people unhappy around the world has been taken care of. Um, so I think, I think that's one of the uh, reasons why the, the Nordic uh, countries do well. There's simply less to worry about. Um, but um, maybe there's also something in, in the genetics. It sounds like your, your dad is born a, a quite happy um, fellow. So, so, so maybe there's also a genetic component. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned some of the things that, um, well, your society is so different than ours. Um, but Danes are very happy to pay their taxes as a result of the benefits that they see. We are not, we're always trying to avoid it, right? We bitch about it over here. We don't want to pay our taxes. Danes are completely happy because of the quality of life it brings. Um, what are some other things that your society differs in our way? I mean, obviously, it's healthcare, um, you know, it's education. What are some other components? Yeah, I mean, let, let's talk a little bit more about the taxes because you, you are right. I mean, we, we, we are relatively happy to pay those taxes. So uh, in surveys, around 88, 90% of Danes say they're happy to pay their tax. Um, the reason for that is is we see that as an investment in quality of life. So we know it comes back to people in terms of um, free healthcare, free university education, uh, great infrastructure around cities, and, and so on. So there's wide public support for that. Also because there is a, a very low level of corruption. So the money actually goes back to people in terms of, of good conditions for good lives. Um, I think other aspects is perhaps a little bit wider perspective on what success is or what the good life entails. I think to some extent it's a less materialistic uh, culture than what could perhaps be the case in the U.S., of course, money matters, but other things matter as well. So people will prioritize um, time off, holidays, uh, paternity leave, vacations um, uh, as part of the good life and not just accumulating wealth. Um, so I think I think that to some extent also explains why the Nordic countries do well. It also I think it is built into the design of society, I think in terms of cities, in terms of policies, I think what has been achieved in the Nordic countries is essentially removing the price tag there is on happiness. Um, and what I mean by that is whether you are rich or poor, you are able to enjoy a relatively high quality of life. And that reduces the stress, that reduces the competition uh, among people to accumulate wealth. You know, it's interesting. I'm not sure if you watched it. I'm assuming you did because you're a Dane. But um, because my stepfather is Danish, we did watch the um, prime minister speak on New Year's. And I was really impressed because and I, I'll sum it up and maybe you perceived it in a different way. But basically expressed that, like, look, you know, if, if, if parents aren't taking care of their children, we're not going to go back 11 times with the child service and all of that. It's like if you don't get it right in a couple of visits, the kids out and it'll be adopted by a family that actually cares and has really considered themselves to be like the prime minister of children. And I thought that was very interesting too. taking that stand. That's something in our society, you know, kids will go through that system forever. And your prime minister just kind of called it out. And again, just a very different way of thinking about our youth. Yeah. And, and there, there is a, there is a uh, focus on, 
Uh, also social mobility. Um, so what you see in a lot of countries is that kids are born into a socioeconomic group and stays in that group throughout their lives. So um, if your parents are poor, uh, you are likely to be poor as well. Uh, I think what works in the Nordic model is actually the American dream. I think that's more alive in, in the Nordics than we unfortunately see in the U.S. And that is moving up in, in terms of, of socioeconomic class. So, so the social mobility is higher in Denmark than it is uh, in the U.S., um, in part because of the policies, in part because of the government uh, making sure that um, that your parents' income and their situation uh, shouldn't limit uh, your uh, path in life. Uh, one one uh, obvious uh, policy here is that that university is free; uh, that it's not up to uh, your parents' uh, income to decide whether you can go to university or not. Uh, but um, but that's something that is accessible for all. And the government gives you a, a grant if you go to university so you can pay for your expenses. I think that's something that enables uh, kids from, from poor families uh, to get to a different position later in life compared to what we see in other societies. So basically, Such an uplifting paradigm, you know, such an uplifting, up-leveling right. and, paradigm. And, and, and basically, I mean, the Denmark to, to a large extent is... Uh, to put it in, a, in 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 blunt crude manners, is is Bernie Sanders' wet dream? I mean, um, in, in Denmark, he's not considered a progressive. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren is just co considered common sense. Um, so it's a very sort mm -hmm. of progressive uh, policy uh, spectrum that we we navigate in. So before we get into your book, The Art of Making Memories, which I loved, I, I would love you to touch on and explain to us this concept of HUGA, H-Y-G-G-E, for those listening. Um, I guess, uh, you know, people use the word cozy to describe it, but it seems a little bit different than maybe our concept of cozy. Can we talk about this concept that you you Sure. Have? So, so I, think, I think the best short definition is the art of creating a... Uh, warm, friendly atmosphere. Um, cozy might be similar, but I think there is a conscious element to it. So, so perhaps even closer is consciously cozy. Um, it can also be be exemplified with with a story. Uh, so, uh, one anecdote is I, I was in Sweden a few years ago with some friends in a cabin, and. We had been outside hiking in the afternoon, but came back inside and, and got the fire going in the fireplace. Um, just got into our, our comfy clothes. Uh, we had also prepared a stew and we got that boiling on the stove. And we're just kicking back, having some wine, enjoying each other's company. Uh, and then one of my friends said, could this be any more hugely, which is the adjective of the word hugely. And then uh, one of the girls said, yes, if there was a storm outside, because that feeling of hugi is also being sheltered from the outside. Now, of course, I mean, that that's that's something that happens everywhere. You know, bringing good people together over some good food, enjoying a fireplace, enjoying some candlelight dinners. Of course, that happens also in the U.S. It happens in in uh, in Austria, in China, in Germany and so on. But what perhaps is uniquely Danish is that we have a word that describes that situation and also that we see it as part of our culture, part of our national identity, uh, perhaps the same way that 
in America, you see uh, freedom as something inherently American, uh, but of course, freedom also exists other places in the world. And I think the same with Hugo. We see Danes, we see uh, Hugo as something inherently Danish, but of course, it happens uh, also outside Denmark. And let's look at some of the the rankings. You know, the Nordic countries definitely consider the happiness. And then I heard you mention once that New Yorkers aren't doing so well. They don't smile so much. What are some of the other places in the world that need some help here <laughs> with regards to their happiness ranking? So, so, so the smiling was just a, a, a study I did a couple of years ago where I looked at the frequency of smiles in 20 cities, I think it was, around the globe. So London, New York, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaga, Spain, uh, Guadalajara, Mexico, and, and so on. It was just to see uh, which under which conditions do, do, do people smile? I don't necessarily think that smiling is equivalent to being happy. I think we can be happy without smiling. And I think sometimes we smile without uh, being happy. But I just wanted to explore under what conditions do people smile and, and where do we see people smiling more? Um, so I spent time in, in 20 different cities uh, across the world, uh, basically looking at people and systematically registering data on were people smiling? Who were those people? What were they doing? How old were they? And so on. And what we found was, you know, unsurprisingly that you are more inclined to smile if you are in company with other people. Um, thank you, Big Data, for that nugget of wisdom. Um, but, I mean, you, you don't smile so often if you're walking by yourself compared to if you're walking with your friends or family. So smiling is a form of communication. It's nonverbal uh, communication. So, so that's why we see that. But as you said, yes, New York was in the lower part uh, of that study. Uh, people uh, don't smile so often in London. They don't smile so often in New York compared to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, compared to uh, Malaga in Spain. But one of the reasons there is that people are more likely to walk two or two, two and two or in groups in Malaga and Kuala Lumpur compared to New York and London. Interesting. So let's, I, first of all, uh, the audience, all of his books are such great gifts for almost everyone you know. They are just mm, full of incredible, interesting research and really inspiring. Let's talk about the art of making memories. You know, you've found that basically long-term happiness can depend on your ability to form a positive narrative of your life. And you say that your research suggests that people are happier with their lives if they tend to hold a positive, nostalgic view of the past. Let's talk a little bit about nostalgia and how this relates. Right. And, and one of the things is we can also see that when people are living with depression, uh, not only are they struggling with being happy right now, but they actually also struggle with remembering any time in the past they were happy. And of course, that's a very dark place to be. So, so we've been looking at how does memory impact happiness? And what can we do not only to retrieve more happy memories from the past, but actually proactively impact and create more happy memories? And I think to me, that was the biggest sort of aha moment in researching and writing that book was understanding that I am actually a memory architect, uh, because earlier I thought of memory as something random, as something I did not have control over. And now I can see that memory is actually something we can influence. I can influence what I and my friends and my family remember in the future. And that's a really nice, powerful position to be in. And it can be little things. Uh, so 
a few months ago, I spoke to a, uh, a reader in, in Poland and she had read the book and was reminded of a time when she was about eight years old and she's having dinner with her mom and her sister and they're having fun and they're laughing and, and, and feeling happy. And then at uh, one point her mother uh, turns to them and say, I hope you remember this moment. And here we are, 30 years later, she still remembers that moment because her mother made her pay attention to it. And I think it's it's wonderful to see how simple a tool attention is. Of course, it's also a tool that can be overused because if you every time you sit down with your kids, say, I hope you remember this moment, <laughs> shut up after a few times. But but used every once in a while, it's, it's, it's a very, very powerful tool. Yeah, uh, again, yeah, taking the time within a moment that feels good to be aware of that awareness is a really interesting concept to kind of seal that in. And I know you, you, in your book, you talk about eight ingredients for happy memories. Um, I'll throw out one and then maybe you can talk about another one you'd like, but just one of them being capturing peaks and struggles, you know, that milestones are memorable, but the struggle to reach one is unforgettable. And I thought that was lovely. We, we sometimes forget those moments and they are to be appreciated and to be, you know, have a sense of gratitude about and can fuel us and our current happiness. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see. It's also why we sometimes fight with our spouses uh, because our struggle is, is, is more memorable. So, so uh, when we ask couples, how big a share of the household chores do you do? How big a share of the shopping? How big a share of the uh, cooking? How big a share of the cleaning? And we ask both uh, both partners, um, uh, and we add those percentages up. It always adds up to more than a hundred percent. So I'll say oh, I do, you know, I do seventy five percent of the cooking, and then my girlfriend will say that she does, you know, fifty percent of the cooking, and of course that adds up. To more than 100 percent and that's for every chore item on the list it always adds up to more than 100 percent the reason for that is that you know when i do the shopping uh, the grocery shopping you know i go to the supermarket and i have to go to several places because all the ingredients we needed are not in one place and you know i pick the wrong line and then check out and i have to wait and uh, you know, i have to carry the bags home and i pack it wrong so all the heavy stuff is in one bag and 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 so on and so on but when my girlfriend does the grocery uh, shopping i just come home and realize that okay uh, Great, we're having chicken for, for dinner tonight. So it, it's a very different experience. Uh, experience is less vivid. And that means that I forget more easily the times that she did the shopping or the cooking or the cleaning and so on. So, so building in a little bit of struggle in our uh, experiences can actually be a, a good thing if we want to remember something. Uh, for instance, uh, a few years ago, I visited uh, Japan with a, a couple of friends and we, we hiked up uh, the Mount Fuji outside Tokyo and hiking up that mountain is of course a more memorable experience than just driving up to the top and, and seeing the view from there. So yeah, building in a little bit of struggle is one of the ways to make sure that we remember things in the future. And um, with regards to nostalgia, you say in your book that it's it's really today, it's a, it's a mark of progress, but that it's considered a useful psychological mechanism that can counteract loneliness and anxiety and make people feel happier. We're a Loneliness is a huge problem in our society and probably a lot of other places other than the U.S. 
I love this concept because it really is about going back and intentionally, or it could happen naturally, but also perhaps intentionally thinking about these moments in life. It's a incredible sense of gratitude that can make you feel calmer and happy about your present. Um, I just, I just find this whole concept very interesting and that, you know, you mentioned it was really the word nostalgia. The actual word was inspired by history's earliest and most epic tales of homesickness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the odyssey and, uh, trying to find your way back home, uh, and the pain that comes from longing for your home, essentially. Uh, but you're right. It's, it's a beautiful skill that we have, the ability to travel in time. You know, we can revisit our past experiences. And that's part of the episodic memory we have. So when we talk about memory, it's important to distinguish between semantic memory and episodic memory. So semantic memory is the knowledge we share with the world about the world. So it's knowing that Paris is the capital of France. Episodic knowledge or episodic memory is remembering your trip to Paris. So the sights, the smells, the tastes are, are Paris, Paris, and that's a very different sort uh, of memory. It's actually where one where we, we travel in time and revisit uh, those places. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something we experience through our five different senses. And it's also why our memory of past experiences can be triggered by different uh, sensory input. So you might listen to a song you heard in high school, and then you instantly travel back in time and revisit those experiences. But you, it's also something you can build into experiences. So that's something that uh, Andy Warhol uh, understood. And what he would do was he would use the, the power of scent. So um, he would wear uh, a perfume for three months and then never wear that perfume again and then switch to another one for three months and then another one for three months and so on. And that meant over time he had created a museum of scent or a museum of memories. So he could say, now I want to go back to the spring of 1982 and then take a whiff of that perfume he wore in that period and then see which uh, memories would come up uh, through that uh, association. So, so yeah, using different senses as, as memory triggers is, is also one of the ways we can... Um, uh, be better at, at retrieving memories in the future. And that would, I guess, yeah, and I love that example in the book. I thought that was interesting. We've all had that. You know, if I smell a certain cologne that was like really popular for guys back when I was in high school, I will just be brought back <laughs> to, you know, that moment. It's right. so, it's a direct, and I know exactly, I'm like, oh, that's Obsession by Calvin Klein, or that's, and it, it just reminds me of a time, and it is nostalgic and interesting. I guess, um, what would you say to people to, if they're having a, you know, huga moment or they're having a lovely time to think about the sense in that moment and try to hone in on the awareness of that for future memory of it? Yeah, I mean, um, for example, if, if we had the situation with the, with the Polish mother we talked about earlier, so, so her saying, I hope you remember this moment. What she might also do is she might call out the dish they're eating um, so, um, a taste can also take us back, um, when we, you know, when we have food we used to have in our childhood, that's also a way to travel back in time and, and to reminisce. Um, it could also be, she could put on a special song and then saying, okay, this is the, 
the soundtrack for this happy memory. And then when her kids um, in the future listen to that song, they'll be reminded uh, of that. So, so, so calling out the different sensory input uh, is also a way to, to create some memory triggers. In the art of making memories, you also, well, you have so many great, wonderful tips, but I love that you say once a year, go someplace you've never been before. And why is that? It, uh, yeah, so so it, it's a huge component in memory making. There's there's an entire chapter in the book dedicated to first experiences because first experiences, novel experiences, stick better to memory, and it's one of the reasons why a lot of us feel that life speeds up as we get older. Um, so when we look at people who are 80 years old or 100 years old and talk with them about their memories, we see a huge share of our uh, collected memories are typically from the period between 15 and 30. In part, that's because it's our formative years, but it, it also has a lot to do with those years, our teenage years, our 20s. We have a lot of first experiences in those years. So first car, uh, first job, uh, first apartment, uh, first kiss, uh, mine was with Christy Lee, an Australian girl, and I was. Uh, whereas in in our forties, in our fifties, in our sixties, we don't have the same uh, amount of first experiences, and first experiences simply stick better to memory. So seeking out new experiences, and that can be, as you say, going to a new place every year, but it can also be new experiences in a gastronomical sense. So, in the book, one of the tips is uh, to organize something I call the Apollo picnic. And you do it around uh, July 20th. And the concept is you ask your friends and your family to bring a dish or an ingredient they have not tried before. So um, it could be Danish herring. It could be habanero chili. Um, and that's going to be a first experience. It might also scare you a little bit, uh, both the herring and the habanero chili. And doing something that scares us is also good for memory making. And the reason you do it on July 20th, 20th and you call it the Apollo picnic is that that's the anniversary for the Apollo mission. So first step uh, on the moon. And this is going to be a first taste. And that means that every once in a while, the media is going to talk about the Apollo mission or the moon landing, and that will trigger your memory of that hopefully wonderful afternoon together with your friends and family where you had that wonderful piece of Danish herring. So, so, so using food as a memory trigger is, is, is also uh, a tip. It, we're living in a world where we're online. We don't connect as much with people in person. Look, I mean, I'm talking, you know, behind a microphone. <laughs> Um, in, in my in my house right now, uh, sometimes I, you know people aren't staying in the cities they once grew up in, right? So they're they're going elsewhere. There's childhood friends. We're connecting via phone um, and and other means. But you know, you talk that the most meaningful is when we connect with other people, and that happy memories of time spent with other people gives us comfort. That's why when we feel lonely, we're more prone to be nostalgic. And I love that concept of Hugo really like leads into that, trying to make more of those moments. Can we talk about the importance of human connection here? Yeah, I mean, we can from many different angles. And I think, you know, one of the most consistent patterns we see in happiness research is the importance of our relationships. Um, so 
it's, it's often the best predictor of whether people are happy or not is whether they have somebody to rely on in times of need. Um, and it's also what we can see matters in terms of why we remember what we remember. Uh, the stories we share, the memories we share is also the glue that binds us together. It's also what helps us remember stuff. Uh, because I might say, uh, remember the time we went to Japan and climbed, climbed Mount Fuji, and then my two friends will be reminded of that and 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 tell stories and things we experienced that I had forgotten. And reminiscing reminiscing about our shared memories is is also a way to strengthen those memories. So memory works a little bit like a muscle. So the more you think of something, the more you talk about and experience, the more likely you are also to keep that memory in the future. Um, and talking about shared experiences is also what binds us together with, with other people. So there are, there are many different angles to that uh, relationship. Can you tell us about um, what you mean when you talk about the 10, year, 10 years time test? Yeah, I, th I think that's that's coming back to doing something that scares us a little bit. Um, so, so we're more likely to remember experiences where we've been out of our comfort zone. Um, so that could be the habanero chili. Uh, I still remember my first bite of habanero chili. Um, and, and I remember when I've done stuff that's been out of our comfort zone. And I think that's sometimes a good test to ask yourself when you are planning uh, a vacation, um, you know, what will I be like more likely to remember uh, 10 years from now? And, and that is probably uh, doing something where you've been pushed a little bit out of your comfort zone. So, so uh, applying that once in a while, I think is, is, is useful if we're interested in making memories. You've done so much research. Um, it's all fascinating. Can you highlight a few things we might not attribute to happiness or might have been shocking to you in your research? I'd love you to touch on just some of the highlights um, over all of your years uh, researching this. Yeah, I think one of the, the big surprises uh, to me in, in, in happiness research was that we can see there actually is a genetic component when it comes to happiness. So... We can see from twin studies that identical twins have fairly similar happiness levels, where non-identical twins don't. Um, so we are born more or less happy, and I actually found that quite surprising at first. But when you think of it, we also know that there is a genetic component to, you know, depression, schizophrenia, and and, and sort of different um, mental health uh, issues. So of course. It also makes sense. There is a, a genetic component to, uh, to to happiness. That said, I mean, there's a lot we can do to impact how happy we feel, uh, and things also matter uh, that are has to do with where we live and the policies we live under. Uh, but there is something we cannot control when it comes to our happiness, and that is our genetics. What are the least happiest places in the world? Oh, that is, I mean, quite unsurprising places like um, South Sudan, uh, Syria, um, Afghanistan, Central African Republic, uh, you know, where people are living under under horrible conditions. Um, so, um, so war, poverty uh, is, is, of course, uh, causes of uh, misery and, and unhappiness. 
Aside from the Nordic countries, what are some of the top happiest places other than, you know, Denmark and Norway? Um, so, so yeah, all the Nordic countries are doing well. Uh, we usually see in the top 10 Switzerland, the Netherlands, um, we see Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, Austria also now in the top 10. Uh, the U.S. Uh, currently around 20th place. Uh, unfortunately, you've been going down uh, in the past few years in terms of, of happiness levels. And we also see the same actually uh, development in other bigger countries, China, India. We also see happiness levels drop. Uh, but there are positive developments in, in, in other countries. Uh, but it means because the bigger, more populous countries, their happiness levels uh, are reducing we also see the world as a whole uh, happiness level being reduced um but yeah there are good news from from uh, from some countries but um, the u.s has been dropping unfortunately what prompted you to get into this research to to be the ceo of the happiness research institute what was it that led you on this journey you've been doing it for almost a decade now seven years now yeah so so i was working for another think tank in copenhagen focusing on sustainability uh, but then started to notice how much was happening globally with happiness research and happiness and politics. So the UN, um, they commissioned the World Happiness Report. They agreed on a happiness resolution. You had different governments started to measure happiness. Um, and I thought, wow, there's a lot happening with happiness globally. And Denmark is often doing quite well in these happiness rankings. There should be somebody in Denmark creating a knowledge center in this field. There should be somebody trying to figure out why is it that Denmark is often doing well. And then I just thought maybe I should do that. Um, and I just I just couldn't let go of that thought. I thought it would be tremendously interesting and rewarding to work with happiness. Uh, but I also thought it was a little bit of a risky, crazy venture, uh, studying happiness and creating a think tank on happiness. Uh, especially this was 2012, so in the wake of the financial crisis. Um, but the, uh, the the personal dimension of, of the story is that uh, I had a mentor at the company I was working for at the time who I, I looked up to in many ways. And, and unfortunately, he became very ill and uh, died when he was 49. And many years ago, uh, my own mother had also died when she was 49. So So I just started to reflect on on what if I only live to see 49? What should I spend the remaining 15 years left I had at that time uh, doing? And I thought I can continue with this job, which is fine, but I'm not super passionate about it. Or I can, you know, try and create this crazy thing called the Happiness Research Institute that I think could be tremendously interesting and fun to work with. And then I essentially just quit and started out with what I thought was a good idea and a bad laptop. Um, and that's seven years ago. And I can, I can say now that that is probably going to be the best decision that I'm going to make in my career. So, so yeah, that's, that's how it, uh, that's how it began. Now, were you, I'm assuming, I, I don't want to, but I'm assuming you were probably already happy before you started this. I can only imagine that your happiness level has increased along this way. How have you been touched by the research personally in, in, in increasing your happiness quotient even further than what it was before you began? Yeah, I mean, you're correct. I mean, I, I think I've been 
privileged in, in that sense that I've, I've always had a, a relatively high level of happiness, but it has also in, increased uh, because of the work we do here. I find it tremendously interesting, rewarding, and gives me a great sense of, of purpose to work with happiness research. And I have a wonderful team who, who contributes a lot to my uh, not only job satisfaction, but life satisfaction. Um, but it's also a, a, a field of research that inspires you, I think, in a good way. You cannot help looking at all these studies uh, and results and evidence without starting to implement uh, some of the, uh, the the things you would you would you would extract uh, from the data. For example, uh, focusing on on relationship and, and building connections with other people, uh, I think is one of the takeaways I've, I've collected over the years. So in sort of closing up here, uh, how can we, well, what would you like to leave our audience with? Is there anything else that comes up about your research that you'd like to share? I mean, it's, it's such a wide topic. So, so I mean, the, also one of the reasons why I love happiness research is that we can look at happiness from so many different angles. You know, looking at, as we've talked about, how genetics and relationships and memory impact happiness to, you know, how should we shape our cities? How does age impact happiness? What's the relationship between health and happiness? We can look at this from so many different angles. And I find that happiness research, there, there is still a lot of uh, dark spots on the map. There's still a lot we don't know. Um, but I find it, it's tremendously interesting and rewarding uh, to work with. So, so whatever uh, interest people have, whether it's health, whether it's jobs, whether it's urban development, whether it's genetics, there are some nuggets uh, in terms of, of happiness research that might be interesting to them. So if they're interested, then of course follow our work at the website or newsletters and social media uh, to get updated on that front. And we will put all of those in the show notes, but what is the main website to connect with some of the research you've been doing? It, it's one of the longest website names in the world. I think it's the happiness, it's happinessresearchinstitute.com. Great. Thank you so much. And look him up on Amazon. We'll put everything in the show notes to connect with his book, books about Huga and also the art of making memories. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for this mission. It's really needed in, in the world and it's very inspiring. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Elle. Thank you so much. Hey there, Primal Blueprint listeners. Did you know that Primal Kitchen Collagen Peptides help support hair, skin, and nails? Well, we offer a variety of collagen products to suit everyone's palate, from unflavored to mango pineapple or golden turmeric, to our keto matcha or chai tea collagen latte mixes, and much more. Visit us at primalkitchen.com and start fueling your day with collagen peptides.